I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. So, Tegan, are you for or against? It depends on what you're talking about, Chris. Come on, there's no waffling now, man. Yeah, for or against? That is a question I don't think I'm going to answer. Okay, the topic is red-eye airplane flights. (laughs) I am absolutely against. I am absolutely against. Is that why you look so blurry-eyed? I am so against red eyes, with the caveat, I'm not against red eye flights if they're taking me, let's say, to Europe, or I guess, you know, from Asia back to the US. But red eye airplane flights from California back to the East Coast? The worst. Against. Anyhow, we're going to power through. If you can stay awake for this podcast, Chris, we've made good progress, but that's just a warning to listeners. It's it's a big warning. You can't give me a, a softball like that. I mean, given the fact that I stay awake during most of your conversations, I'm pretty confident I'll make it through this one too. We have a special episode today. We've gotten a number of mailbag questions. The guilt is overwhelming that we've not been getting to all of them. And so we're going to do a special mailbag this week based both on the quantity, but more importantly, the quality. Some really great questions that align with a lot of the topics of the day. As a reminder, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. If you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to contact Hagen via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with business. So, Tegan, the first question is on the debt limit. And I know you saw the piece. You posted it in Political Wire earlier this week from Politico that nobody knows when it's going to happen. Wall Street wakes up to default threat. The government has until the summer to strike a deal. And Politico wrote, for months, Wall Street has barely focused on the possibility that the government might default on its debt. It's paying attention now. As the drop dead date to raise the nation's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling looms with no deal in sight, traders and executives are starting to get nervous that President Joe Biden and Republicans won't resolve the impasse until it's too late. That's sparked increasing concern about a potential threat that could rock markets and tilt the world's largest economy into recession. So that news aligns with the question that we got from Rick W., who wrote us, for one of the new Trial Balloon podcasts, now that the debt limit has been politically weaponized, I suspect most citizens would like to see it go away. Why can't a president simply raise the debt limit? Couldn't he interpret the 14th Amendment's public debt clause as making the refusal of Congress to raise the debt limit unconstitutional? Who would have standing to challenge such an assertion? If there were a legal challenge that got past standing, how would a court rule? Assuming the Supreme Court ultimately ruled against the president, why couldn't he ignore the ruling under the fact that the president has just as much authority to interpret the Constitution as the judiciary? There is nothing in the Constitution giving the judiciary sole authority to interpret the Constitution. That's a Supreme Court usurping power in Marbury v. Madison. If that's not enough to deter an adverse ruling, creating a constitutional crisis, doesn't the president have all the chips given favorable public opinion? So there's obviously a lot there. I'm only expecting you to marginally utilize your deep well of constitutional law experience and expertise. I don't know how deeply you can go into that component of it, but certainly real questions about the debt limit, how to handle it, Biden's options, and so on. 
probably the best advice my father, who was a lawyer, ever gave me was to uh, not go to law school. So he did not see me as your typical lawyer. I just don't think that he thought my brain worked that way. So I can't really answer the questions about constitutional law. Instead of working as a lawyer, I did work, as you know, for nearly two decades on Wall Street. That's a much higher calling. (laughs) I do think that Wall Street is the much bigger check on Joe Biden acting unilaterally in some way, whether it's through the 14th Amendment and his own interpretation of that, or whether it's through the minting of a trillion dollar coin. Anytime there is ambiguity in what's going to happen here, the financial markets will react first. What we've seen so far is that the financial markets haven't really paid much attention. They've looked at past debt limit crises, and they've said the solution has always kind of come about. And pretty much at this point, whether it's the House passing a bill or not passing a bill, whether it's Democrats coming to the table or not coming to the table, or whether the Senate is going to bail everybody out and pass a clean debt limit increase, we will see how that plays out. But at some point, the financial markets are going to react. And they're going to react in a way that's going to force their hands. And so you can just imagine a situation where Joe Biden decided to act unilaterally on this and decide that he had certain powers that is not clear. And maybe that would have to go to the courts to figure that out. That time period when the courts are trying to figure things out creates tremendous uncertainty on Wall Street and the chaos in the financial markets would be enough to force the politicians' hands alone. They are not going to let that happen. We saw that a little bit back in 2008 during the financial crisis when Wall Street was waiting for a bank bailout. The Republicans in the House of Representatives could not find the votes to pass this bank bailout that was so necessary, even though President Bush at the time backed this and wanted it done. The Republican lawmakers could not get themselves to the point where they could back this. And we saw the cratering of the financial markets day after day after day. And ultimately it happened. That brings me to what happened after that, which was the political ramifications of the government acting in such a way. The bank bailout in 2008 led to the Tea Party movement. And the Tea Party movement led to Republicans taking control of Congress in 2010. It led to total chaos and inability of the Republican caucus to find the votes to pass many different measures. That's the other thing that Joe Biden is worried about. There's an election, if you didn't know, Chris, in 2024. Joe Biden does not want to inadvertently cause something that's going to derail his reelection hopes in 2024. And acting unilaterally like an autocrat undermines his entire message. You know, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, they are the ones who tend to act like that. They're the ones who tend to see powers that they don't have. And I think it's the last thing that Joe Biden's going to do. So two follow-ups on that. You said they are not going to let that happen, meaning both the executive branch and Congress aren't going to blow through the debt ceiling because that's going to cause too much financial trouble ultimately. However, you also just said that from the previous example in 2010, that that was when the Tea Party was born. Well, yesterday's Tea Partiers are today's moderate Republicans in a way, and the even more extreme Republicans We all know it doesn't take more than a couple of Republicans in the House, let's say five, to torpedo anything that McCarthy would want to do. Now, of course, what he could end up doing is creating something then with Democrats, but that then becomes a different story. So one is they are not going to let that happen. Are you confident about that, even with the ultra right-wing capabilities within the House? That's number one. 
Question number two is, you were just saying about the authoritarian look from Biden and the politics of that. On the one hand, I understand the argument why that's a negative and that's against brand and it's against the argument that he would make regarding Trump or DeSantis. And so he doesn't want to do that. On the other hand, isn't there political strength if Biden is the one who takes the position that I am the adult in the room? We're paying our bills and one person's authoritarianism is another person's I'm the adult in the room. I'm going to make sure that we do the right thing because all reasonable people agree it's the right thing. So two follow-ups. One, are yesterday's Tea Partiers, today's Republican moderates, and the more extremists could torpedo the whole thing or could they not? And then two, the politics of, quote unquote, an authoritarian take on this topic. There are clearly more extreme Republicans than there were back in 2010 when the Tea Party movement was roaring. So there are more of those. But I'll combine these two questions because really for President Biden to act as the adult in the room, it doesn't mean acting unilaterally. It doesn't mean finding powers that may or may not exist that may need to be determined by the courts. The way that President Biden acts like the adult in the room is he finds the votes to pass legislation. And while Kevin McCarthy is trying to rely solely on Republican votes somehow to solve this problem or to force Democrats to cave to his wishes and to his caucus's wishes, Biden doesn't need as many votes to do that. Democrats control the U.S. Senate. And ultimately, just as McCarthy has only a small majority, Biden only needs a small number of Republicans to join Democrats in passing something. Obviously, everything that we've seen suggests that they are farther apart and have never been farther apart on this debt limit, particularly with the idea of doing this all you know, with the McCarthy proposal simply to raise the debt ceiling only until the beginning of 2024. It's hard to see something like that passing or even Democrats helping with that. But you have a situation where ultimately Joe Biden will have to put together something that is convincing to the financial markets. And I believe this case related to the Politico piece that you teed up at the very beginning of this segment, ultimately it's going to be the financial markets that are going to be calling for this and that are going to be pushing lawmakers in a direction that they should go to alleviate this problem. It's a silly problem. Congress has already allocated, appropriated the money to blow past the debt limit. It's one of these silly problems that is just leading to political posturing and all the rest. But there are real financial implications of going through the debt limit. And ultimately, I think those financial implications are what will cause lawmakers to come to the table. So as we've noted a few times, one of the goals of this podcast is to address the political aspects of the major issues of the day. There are financial reasons why things exist. There are legal reasons why things occur. And there are political reasons. You touched a little bit on the financial driver around the debt limit. Here's what I would say, since you really, in the end, dodged Rick's actual question about the constitutional law and the component, what happens if Biden takes certain actions and who wins between Biden and the Supreme Court? And you fell back on the age old excuse that you just listened to what your parents said and you avoided <laughs> law school. If we have any listeners who are con law professors or scholars or experts, send us a note. I'd be interested to understand some of that dynamic on what folks think about the tension there between the judiciary and the executive branch. And if we get some good or useful insight, we'll bring it going forward. 
Chris, um, you do realize that listeners can rewind this podcast and listen to what I said, because the way that you characterize what I said actually isn't true at all. But nonetheless, we would welcome our constitutional law experts as listeners to weigh in on this question. We would welcome their comments always. So I tell you what, if you're so strong on uh, the judiciary, Matt S. is about to give you another chance to weigh in on it. So he wrote to you, Hi, Tegan. Hear me out. What about John Roberts calling for Clarence Thomas to resign? Otherwise, if he won't resign, calling for a full investigation resulting in impeachment and conviction if evidence supports. I should give a little bit of context. First of all, this question came in last week, so I think you'll touch on it in a moment. There's been a little bit of news since then. And of course, the topic is Clarence Thomas and the revelations that he might have taken a vacation or two or 10 with a Republican donor. The note continues, further, Roberts calls for Congress to pass an ethics code for the Supreme Court. If Roberts really cares about the legitimacy of the court, this would put immense pressure on Thomas and the GOP writ large. The American public would certainly notice if the chief justice were calling out another justice. It would put the GOP in an indefensible position if they don't support reforms. Roberts gets the credibility of the court back, and even if Thomas is out, he still has a majority and it puts him back as the crucial swing vote. It's a total power move. What do you think, Matt? First of all, I love the question. And I love the idea, at least in theory, of the chief justice making a power move like this. I mean, it's the stuff of great legal dramas, great movies that you know might be made. And this would be totally a power move on the chief justice's part. What you need to know is you need to understand a little bit about the dynamics of the court right now and how tenuous Chief Justice Roberts may feel his power is at this point. He is not just the swing vote anymore. He has a majority of conservatives on this court that he needs to work with and he needs to play with. And so I think one indication of his inability or his unwillingness to make a power move like this is the fact that Roberts just last week has declined to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on ethics of Supreme Court justices. And he's instead referred the request that Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin made to the Judicial Conference, which serves as the policymaking body of the federal courts. And so he's punting on the whole Clarence Thomas question right off the bat. The other thing to remember about this is the backdrop of what Roberts is dealing with on the courts. There was, as you recall, just last spring, I guess, the leak of a early Supreme Court decision, which ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade. That's something that Chief Justice Roberts said he would get to the bottom of, figure out who leaked those documents. He never did. And as somebody who has worked in government trying to chase down leaks, I don't think he ever will. It's incredibly hard to plug one of these leaks. So he's got a situation where he's not entirely sure of his power and where everybody stands, because there's somebody on that court who did leak these documents. Maybe it was a justice, maybe it was a clerk, maybe it was a combination, maybe it was part of a broader scheme. He doesn't know. But I think that John Roberts probably doesn't have as much control over the court to make one of these power moves. So as much as I would love to read a novel about it or watch a movie about it, I just don't see it happening. Robert's power as the swing vote has obviously shifted at the least and potentially even completely gone away, right? The power now seems to sit with the three very conservative justices. That's what many are writing. And that's a lot of the analysis, of course, that I've read and that folks read. At the same time, is not the greatest challenge that Roberts faces as the chief justice, the public opinion towards the Supreme Court? 
we all know what the public polls have said, and they really, really, really declined. I mean, you just talked about the leak before the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. But even then, subsequently, with the actual decision, so the leak and then the actual decision, Supreme Court ratings or public opinion about the Supreme Court has just sunk. There's a piece last year from Gallup. Americans' confidence in the court has dropped sharply over the past year and reached a new low in Gallup's nearly 50-year trend. 25% of U.S. adults say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. It should have said only 25%, down from 36% a year ago and five percentage points lower than the previous low recorded in 2014. Pew Research Center, positive views of Supreme Court declined sharply following abortion ruling. Following a term in which the Dobbs v. Jackson ruling ending the federal guarantee of the right to abortion, Americans' ratings of the Supreme Court are now as negative as and more politically polarized than at any point in more than three decades of polling on the nation's highest court. Just 28% of Democrats, Democratic-leaning independents, now view the court favorably, down 18 percentage points from just six months earlier, down nearly 40 points since 2020. Positive views of the court among Republicans and Republican leaners have increased modestly since the start of the year. As a result, the partisan gap in favorable views of the Supreme Court, 45 percentage points, is wider by far than any point in 35 years of polling on the court. That was from fall of last year, the Pew Research Center. So my question is, Roberts has been characterized as holding the authority and the sanctity of the Supreme Court that is a key concern for him. Does he not need a bold move or some kind of move to start to turn that tide? And would not some action around ethics, not around policy, not around decisions, but around the ethics of the court, wouldn't that be a move that would go to the heart of this major concern of Roberts? I don't think so, because I think if John Roberts looks at the polling that you cited, I think it's very clear what's driving that polling. It's not the legitimacy of the Supreme Court or the ethics of individual justices on the Supreme Court. It's the fact that the Supreme Court is doing things that's very unpopular. When the Supreme Court overturns abortion rights and 70 plus percent of Americans support that, they're going to have a very unfavorable view of the courts. When the Supreme Court guts gun control legislation in states where the vast majority of Americans support it, the Supreme Court's going to suffer in public opinion polls as a result. And the same is true for any number of issues that the court faces, which this conservative majority has been taking the unpopular side. So if Chief Justice Roberts wants to improve the image of the court, it's probably stopped doing things that the majority of the country doesn't like. I don't think that the ethics of Justice Clarence Thomas is going to change matters much. I don't think that helps, obviously. I think that it's only going to hurt the legitimacy of the court. But I think that it's what the court has done that is causing these public opinion polls to look so terrible. But isn't the decline in the view of the legitimacy of the court? Yes, I understand your argument. The Supreme Court is taking positions that are seen as extreme and go against the mainstream of the U.S. and where most people stand. That said, what they also are doing is not just taking potentially unpopular positions, which in the end, we could certainly make arguments where there may be cases where you want a Supreme Court that might take unpopular positions. There certainly have been times throughout America's history that we have desired that. 
these cases, in my opinion, don't fall in that direction. But the question of unpopular opinions, yes, that attacks legitimacy, but doesn't legitimacy get attacked more? Because it wasn't just that they took an unpopular position, and here I'm thinking mainly of Dobbs, but they also reversed decades of precedence having this ruled on and then ruled on again, the Roe v. Wade and the legitimacy of Roe v. Wade, they just completely threw out precedence and said, oh, let's put it back to the states and there's no federal guarantee for the right to abortion. So yes, the unpopularity of the decisions, I agree with you, is a concern, but it's the throwing away of tradition and the ethics around it, also the games that have been played around the seating of justices, and I understand that that was done by Congress and by McConnell, but that also, I think, started to get to the questions around the legitimacy of the court, because it's the makeup of the court, it's the going against the precedent in the way that they have been doing, or the way that they did, and the ethics around it, I actually think is a really major issue. Quit making such unpopular decisions, sure, but how about act honorably? If you act honorably, and if you have justices who are seated in a way that has the full confidence of the US, I actually think that gives you a little bit of room to make unpopular decisions. Not these unpopular decisions, but I think it gives you a little more room. I think that Roberts advancing the ethics of the court would be a very, very strong move for him that would be on brand as well for what it's been said that he really cares about. You make a good point. It was something that I just assumed and didn't say explicitly, but of course, ethics was involved in the abortion rights decision because you had multiple justices, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who either said directly or who implied that Roe v. Wade was settled law and that this was not something that they would overturn. That was clear from their confirmation hearings that that's the position that they were going to take. Yes. And then when actually put to a vote on the Supreme Court, they chose to act otherwise. So obviously, is that ethical to put forth one thing and then as soon as you're actually on the court to say something else? Of course, it's not. So yes, I'm not saying that ethics are not important. And I'm not saying that the Supreme Court can play a role in American society by taking the minority position. Obviously, that's really what the country's been founded on, and that's imperative. But I think in this situation, it's a combination of both things. If the Supreme Court did not overturn 48 years of what was deemed settled law that the majority of Americans support, I do think that the public opinion polling would be a little bit different. But it's not to say that ethics isn't important. I just don't think that Clarence Thomas as an ethical issue is by itself going to be enough to change those polling numbers for John Roberts. Keep in mind that John Roberts himself also voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. So he's on that side of the issue as well. And so no matter what his position is with Clarence Thomas, which is indefensible in my view, and probably one reason that Roberts doesn't want to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee, because how are you going to answer those questions? That's Obviously, Clarence point. Thomas should have declined those gifts or should have at least disclosed them. In any event, John Roberts has a problem on his hands. And as much as I'd love to see him make a power move that's worthy of great political novels, I just don't see this one happening. Great thanks to Matt and to Rick for the Supreme Court questions and for really pushing Tegan on his constitutional law knowledge. Tegan, I think you did a great job faking it. We've got one other question, which much to your happiness will take both of us out of the Supreme Court and constitutional law and back greatly into the realm of politics. This letter came in to me via my newsletter. Jason wrote, hi, Chris, I'm a fan of your newsletter, your podcast, and Political Wire. 
Jason presents as a very credible source. I'm going to go on with this letter, but well, he's got a really great media diet. That's for sure. <laughs> he has a very limited media diet. I'm sure he has all sorts of other great publications and websites that he visits, but thank you, Jason. We greatly appreciate the compliments. On a recent Trial Balloon podcast, you repeated your call for listener questions, so I thought I'd put one out to you and Tegan. We know there are draconian new laws passed by Republican state legislatures, bounties on women getting abortions, punishments for teachers with, quote, woke school books in their classroom. You and others report this has had a chilling effect since women slash teachers are scared of being convicted of a felony or paying giant fines. And yet, as far as I can tell, no one has actually been convicted or punished for anything. Why has no one on the left challenged these laws? In the 1920s, we had John Scopes. In the 60s, we had Rosa Parks. Surely some progressive activist, backed by a liberal millionaire, could put these laws to the test and show voters how awful they are. In the polarized world of 2023, I can't believe there's no one passionate enough, brave enough, and, if you like, foolish enough to dare these states to put them on trial. I'd love your thoughts on the matter. Thanks for reading. Jason. So I guess I did lie. I guess there is a uh, a judicial component to this as well. But it's an excellent question, Tegan. Where is today's Rosa Parks? That is a fantastic question. I would predict that there is a Rosa Parks or John Scopes out there who has actually already begun to challenge these laws in some way or another. It's just that even though we know John Scopes and we know Rosa Parks today, there were probably dozens and dozens of cases, and those were the ones that became part of the public consciousness because those were the ones that ultimately were decided in a historic fashion. And so I love the question because I, obviously our listeners are looking to the big picture. They're looking historically. They're looking for these big moves that can be made either by citizens or by our politicians in order to solve some of these public problems that we're facing. All I can say is I'm virtually certain that that's happening. I've read about smaller cases that have been brought, but we just don't know those individuals' names yet. It will take time to get through the court system and we will see how they're decided. But obviously there are some of these things that just seem indefensible, as Jason points out. Certainly the banning of books in the classrooms and giving you know the ability to use these sort of bounties in order to enforce laws, that's something that just seems to go against how our legal system is set up. But we will see how it works out. But a great question and one we should obviously pay great attention to as news of these cases comes out. You know, I wonder as well, and this aligns with one of the themes that we've been talking about recently, relying on the courts to settle these types of issues versus relying on politics. And I understand these are laws that have been made. And so the place to undo laws or to find laws not being upheld or to find them to be unconstitutional in some way, that requires the courts. I understand that. I feel that while this approach is required, one does need to press on all fronts and certainly through the courts and through any legal means, I would definitely be concerned about relying purely on the judiciary as the avenue to change laws. I think that this is another question that we've been dealing with, but pushing on the politics, pushing on the voting, working on state legislatures and getting laws changed by having legislatures that reverse laws such as the ones that we're talking about. I think advancing on both fronts simultaneously is required. My point simply being so often we've been looking for 
the judiciary to uphold or overturn laws that we don't like. And as we were just talking about with Dobbs, that is not necessarily always the best path forward. So yes, we should be looking for these cases, but we shouldn't rely solely on these cases. Totally agree. If you if you want to make the real power move to get rid of that Texas law that allows bounties to be paid to citizens who report some of these incidents regarding abortion, the real power move is for Democrats to build majorities in this country and to pass a law guaranteeing abortion rights to all women in this country. That's the power move. So obviously that can't happen necessarily. So it's the courts where we fight these cases. One of these cases will probably come up at some point, whether it's with regard to the woke, so-called woke books in classrooms in Florida, or whether it's this abortion bounty law in Texas, these laws will be challenged. And so we'll see where they end up going. We'll see if there's a John Scopes or Rosa Parks in our future. And another call to listeners, if you're aware of any of these cases, such as the ones that Jason is asking about in his letter, let us know. If you see cases where there is a potential John Scopes, a potential Rosa Parks, send a note to Tegan or me, and we'll make it known to folks through this podcast. Thank you to Jason and to Matt and to Rick. Tegan, you know what time it is now? What time is it, Chris? It's time to get these cobwebs out of my head and to get a legal agreement written that says I will never have to take another red eye. And before you do that, you might want to just take a nap. I'm going to sleep. Good night, Tegan. Good night, Chris. Thank you.